This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss David Wallace's Wells, deputy editor of New York Magazine, his recently published book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, David Wallace's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, in July 2017, uh, David published a lengthy essay in New York Magazine titled The Uninhabitable Earth, Famine, Economic Collapse, The Sun That Cooks Us, What Climate Change, what climate change Could Wreak Sooner Than You Think. I interviewed David soon after on August 2nd about that essay. David has now expanded his essay via a just-published book-length treatise titled again The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. The dust jacket comments include, Wallace Wells has produced a willfully terrifying polemic. The work, quote-unquote, doesn't sugarcoat the horror, and, quote-unquote, a brilliant and unsparing analysis of a nightmare. Over 220 pages accompanied by 60 pages of notes, David details at substantial length what we can expect from global warming that the U.S., the U.N., rather, tells us is currently on track to raise global temperatures on average to 4 degrees centigrade or 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit before the end of this century. This increase is substantially beyond what the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change told us last October, and that is we need to keep average temperature increases to less than 2 degrees centigrade or closer to 1.5. The world is presently on average 1.1. The UN also calculates absent massive economic restructuring will pass 1.5 on or before 2040. Just to note, the difference between 1.5 and 2 is, in a word, cataclysmic. For example, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade represents 150 more deaths from greenhouse gas pollution. 2 degrees centigrade also constitutes a tipping point, meaning the planet will then experience runaway warming. One final note, I encourage listeners or younger listeners to share his work and or this interview since obviously your generation will inherit the full consequences of climate change. With me again to discuss his book, or What Warming Means to Survival, is again David Wallace. Well, so lengthy um, background intro, uh, apologies, so let's get to this. Um, as an interview, I thought it quite effective. Uh, in your intro, you noted the planet has experienced five great extinctions. Many scientists believe we are now in the sixth. But can you explain um, what caused these uh, five others or four of the uh, five others, as you know, and to what effect? Yeah, there are actually four of the five previous ones um, were stories quite like the one that we're living through now, which is to say changes in the planet's climate um, related to greenhouse gases and rapid warming. Um, so... Some of these have been quite traumatic. The most traumatic, um, the end Permian extinction, also sometimes called the Great Dying, resulted in at least 90 and perhaps as much as 97% of all life on Earth um, dying. And some of the others are a little bit less um, extreme, but in each case, 
60 or 70 percent of life on earth um was um destroyed by effectively by the forces of of global warming and there was one of the five that was the result of an asteroid but the others were um natural climatic changes um that just so radically transformed the environment that all of the biological life that was here at the time um couldn't manage to survive and i think in that context it's really um important to understand and scary to understand that we're now living entirely outside of the window of um planetary temperatures that have enclo- that enclosed all of human history so never before have humans walked on a planet as warm as the one that you and I walk on today and that opens up some really big questions about you know if humans ever would have evolved in the first place if the planet had always been this warm if we would have been able to develop agriculture and through agriculture civilization if the planet had always been this warm because in the parts of the world where we did develop agriculture the middle east it's already very hard um to grow crops because of temperature increases and we'll only get more so um so we're living in an unprecedented climate situation and in the past when the planet has moved through um changes of this scale it has meant completely catastrophic mass die-offs that effectively meant a total slate wiping of the planet and an evolutionary history and something like a total starting over um biologically I don't think that's what's going to happen to humans I think we're too resilient and too adaptable for that I think our civilization is too strong but it does give you some context um with which to start asking questions about in what ways this force of warming will transform and change the way that we live um on the planet how it will impact our lives beyond the sort of um well understood sea level rise and and heat waves and that kind of thing um there are many more complicated impacts and that's one of the things i'm trying to do in my book is to think through what it will mean for our politics and our culture what it will mean for our economic activity and how we relate to it um what it will mean for our sense of our place in nature and our sense of our place in history and that's because the more you read about this stuff the more you more research you uncover the more you learn the more you see climate change as a all-encompassing story an all-encompassing threat it is literally a global system it is the theater in which we conduct all of our lives and when it changes um it changes everything about the way that we live so i think we're heading into a century where that will be um even more the case than it is now that we will um be unable to see any feature of modern life that doesn't bear at least the fingerprint and maybe something more like the bootprint of um of global warming and my book is an, sort of a early travelog of that near future yes on the extinctions uh there were some attribute to volcanism which spewed massive amounts of carbon uh into the atmosphere we're now at about 411 parts per million and as you note in the book we haven't seen that amount uh in somewhere upwards of 15 uh, million years based on your study let's go to uh, what based on your exhaustive research um what is the most likely scenario uh or what's uh, or what's currently a uh, no pun here uh what's baked in I don't uh, you know there there are probably a couple of tenths of degree of temperature rise that are, that are that are baked in um just from the carbon that's in the atmosphere already 
um, I don't think that we'll get all, we would get all the way up to 1.5 degrees from 1.1 where we are now if, if we totally stopped emitting carbon right now. Mm-hmm. The main driver of the, what, what, what makes it all feel unstoppable or inevitable are not, at this point, given where we are, um, natural systems or climate, you know, climate feedbacks um, themselves. The main driver really is human activity, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that can seem even more intimidating because it seems so difficult to reorient and, um, you know, reimagine the way that we live on the planet in a way that would um, impose less sort of carbon cost going forward. But it's you know it's just um, the whole problem is a human problem. If we get to some of these more horrifying scenarios, if we get to three degrees or four, or four degrees of warming, it will be because of action that we take now going forward. Um, as you say, there's, there's, there's some amount of warming that's going to happen, whatever we do, but it's really quite small. And all of the big, um, you know, all the big impacts will be the result of actions we take now or fail to take. And I think that's um, one of the things that many people don't really appreciate that when we, when we think about the sort of range of horrors that are possible. So, you know, if we end up at four degrees by the end of the century, estimates are that that'll involve $600 trillion in climate damages, which is double all the wealth that exists in the world today. It'll mean hundreds of millions of climate refugees. It'll mean twice as much war as we see today um, because temperature and conflict are, are really closely related. Um, if we get there, it will be by our own doing. And as a result, it's sort of a, the, the scale of those horrors is also a reminder of just how much power we, we retain over the climate. If we could bring about those horrors, we could also intervene in the other direction if we chose to, if we mobilized and made different decisions about how we were behaving collectively on the planet. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that while we are facing in a very short-term way some quite terrifying, quite dispiriting um, climate futures. The fact that they're there at all is a reflection of our power over the climate and should um, should make us take action more quickly rather than um, fall away into passivity. Yes, yeah, so we are, the, the air is now termed relative to our effect, the Anthropocene. And then you, you do note over and again in the book that the solutions are very well known. I mean, we know uh, what we need to do, and it simply comes down to reduce uh, carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions. Let's let's go to um, this has got increasing attention. You discuss it, uh, so there's still, of course, more to be learned about the science of uh, of global warming or climate change. And you get into this a bit, and that's this issue of feedback loops, uh, mm-hmm. since they are uh, at present. Uh, they pose a, a grave danger relative to the possibility of greatly accelerating warming. Can you explain one or two of these uh, feedback loops? And, of course, the, the predominant one is is uh, uh, permafrost methane. Yeah, that's the one that people, um, sort of lay, engaged lay people, seem most concerned about. So um, in, the, in permafrost, which is a... a um, permanently frozen soil in the upper latitudes and the northern latitudes, there is buried um, in one form or another uh, about twice as much carbon as currently exists in the atmosphere. 
And because the planet's warming, that permafrost is melting and that carbon will be released over time. Um, some of it will be probably released as methane. That's uh, CO4. We're familiar with CO2, which is carbon dioxide, but methane is a variant, CO, CO4. And methane is, depending on how you judge, um, somewhere between 30 and 80 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as uh, carbon dioxide. So we could end up with an um, enormous addition to um, the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere through this process. The question is how fast it'll happen, um, how fast the melting has happened, how much of that carbon will be released as methane as opposed to carbon dioxide, and how long it'll stay in the atmosphere. And on this point, you know, most climate scientists are actually relatively sanguine. As I say, this is a threat that has really um, preoccupied many sort of um, lay readers and people who are engaged and concerned about climate, but who are not themselves scientists. The scientists tend to be basically um, less worried about it, I would say, on the whole, um, although it's also the case that the news has gotten considerably worse just over the last few years. There have been a number of studies showing much more methane coming out of the permafrost than had been registered before, and we don't yet have a total picture of what that means, but it's certainly concerning. Um, it's also something that concerns me, and that I'm in, in, in certain ways confused that um, the scientific community um, is, is less worried about it than I am. Um, I think that has something to do with the fact that it has been picked up by some fringier, um, more alarmist parts of the, um, of the internet, and they're reluctant to um, endorse those um, anxieties. But I think there is real reason for concern, although I also take some comfort in the fact that scientists are less worried about it than people who know the, um, the issues less well. Um, and a feedback loop that they're more worried about is one that's called the um, albedo effect, and that is you know, we know because um, we know that white surfaces reflect uh, sunlight and dark surfaces absorb them. We know that because when we wear a white shirt on a summer day, it's cooler than wearing a black shirt on a summer day. The same thing is true of the planet as a whole. And one of the whitest parts of the planet is um, the Antarctic and the Arctic, all that ice. That ice is white. When it melts, it becomes water, which is blue. And rather than reflecting sunlight, the planet will then absorb more of it. The more ice melts, the less the planet will be able to reflect sunlight back into the atmosphere, or sorry, back into outer space. And as a result, um, it'll be absorbing more heat from the sun, which means more warming. And that's a sort of, um, you can understand how that's a spiraling effect, because more warming then means less ice, means more warming, means less ice, and on and on and on. Um, the, the feedback loop that actually has been on my mind most lately is one that I just um, learned about. There's a study published just this week um, in Nature about cloud formation. So, right, yes, I um, saw that. Yes, yeah. At about the the, the paper, and it, it's just one paper, so it's not entirely clear how much this is, um, you know, how how strong the science is. But the fact that it's published in Nature and the background of the scientists themselves suggests that it's quite, you know, quite serious. Um, if we get to about 1,200 parts per million of carbon, which again is very much higher than we are now and probably too high for us to get to, even if we do nothing about our emissions until sometime next century. But if we get there, they suggested it would completely disrupt the cloud formation system that exists on the planet right now. So the headline of one of the popular articles that was written about it was A World Without Clouds, which is alarming enough in an aesthetic way. But the much more harrowing part of it is that the scientists theorize that this, um, this feedback loop alone, just the disappearance of clouds, would mean an additional eight degrees Celsius of warming on its own, 
which means that we'd probably be already at about four or five degrees Celsius of warming if we had 1,200 parts per million of carbon, but that would immediately accelerate to something like 12 or 13 degrees Celsius of warming. And while the title of my book is, in ways, hyperbolic, The Uninhabitable Earth, 12 or 13 degrees warming would make huge parts of the planet literally uninhabitable. Not to say all of it, it wouldn't be impossible for a human to be alive on the planet, in fact, quite far from that, but the whole central belt of the planet, the, the tropics, the equatorial band, um, even much of the mid-latitudes would be made functionally unlivable at that, at that level of warming. And the scientists say that um, it will happen if we get to that carbon concentration. So we better not. Let's, let's go to scientists. Um, so uh, midway through your work, you know James Hansen's criticism uh, in the late 80s. Uh, he termed the phenomenon scientific reticence. You, uh, you explain that, uh, and you actually say in the subsequent page it's perfectly reasonable, but this gets to the question of the adequacy of scientists explaining or communicating uh, climate change. So what was Hansen's uh, critique? Um, and I'd ask you to explain why you say that uh, their uh, excessive caution, you say later, why do you think that uh, – what explains that? Yeah, he, he, he basically looked around and saw many of his colleagues um, reluctant to talk about the scarier um, aspects of their, of their research in public. They would talk about it privately. They would worry about it themselves. But when they were speaking in a public forum, they downplayed the scarier um, risks that they saw um, coming down the, the highway for us. And, um, and instead focused on the sunnier side of their projections. And I find that I have found that too. I think that the scientific discourse is changing a bit on this. I think that the UN IPCC report you mentioned from October right. has played a role in signaling a new era of, um, a new era for messaging about climate change that invites scientists to speak more openly and in more explicitly alarmed terms than they, they felt they were comfortable doing before. In fact, you but called before, it at one point, time to freak out. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the main message of it. Um, right, yes. none, of the research in that, none of the research in that report was new, um, but what was new was that it came packaged in uh, you know, a, a framing that said very explicitly, you know, we have to mobilize at the scale that we mobilized for World War II to combat climate change. We need that globally, and we need to do it starting now, starting in 2019, um, to avoid the worst case, or not, not the worst cases, to avoid uh, the catastrophic level of warming, a level of warming that islands of the nation, island nations of the world called genocide. Um, that was not the kind of rhetoric that scientists had ever used before, and it really was a sea change. And I think we're starting to see the conversation move as a result. But for quite a long time, for several decades, I would say, um, scientists really were um, uncomfortable talking about the scarier end of what was possible. And I think that that, you know, I write in the book, it's understandable in part because they're, they're temperamentally cautious, they're scientists. They're also trained to be especially focused on detail and not wanting to get anything wrong. Many of them did battle with the forces of climate denial and understand that any excessive hyperbole or misstated fact would come back to haunt them. And I think for all those reasons, it sort of makes sense. Um, but I think they also had some misunderstandings about social science and the um, sort of best practices of um, communication and political mobilization and felt that it was really important 
to always focus on messages of hope and optimism when it came to climate change. I think part of that was because they were themselves so engaged in the issue that they were people who were at risk of sort of falling into fatalism and despair. But when I look at the world, um, I see many, many more people who are complacent than are fatalistic. And I think that there is real um, power in fear um, to bring people out of complacency and into something more like engagement. And in fact, that's, <clears throat> that's my story. Um, the re I, you know, I'm, I used to be someone who was concerned about climate, but not especially alarmed about it and not especially engaged about it. And I've become, you know, I wrote a book. I'm quite outspoken. It's come to dominate much of my life. And that's because I'm scared. And that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me having read through the social science research as well, which says basically people, different people respond to different kinds of messaging. Some people are going to respond to fear. Some people are going to respond to hope and optimism. Some are going to respond to technocratic utopianism. Some are people. Some are going to respond to intimate, tragic stories. And and you can't um, predetermine what the best messaging strategy is ahead of time. The best way to approach things is just to invite everyone to tell all kinds of stories and sort of see what sticks. Um, but I think the lessons are also clear from the history. When you look at Rachel Carson, Silent Spring was called hysterical, hyperbolic, alarmist, irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And it led to the um, ban on DDT and the creation of the EPA. And when you see, you know, the campaigns that have been waged against cigarette smoking, against drunk driving, these are not movements that left um, fear on the table as a rhetorical tool. They embraced that. It wasn't the whole, you know, the whole message, but it was a huge part of it. And it worked. Right. And HIV. When you think back, right. HIV. Yes, exactly. Yeah. When you think back to um, the recommendations that the UN makes for what we need to do, they're saying we need a World War II style mobilization. World War II was not a war that was fought out of hope and optimism. Um, I mean, we did it in part because we wanted to secure um, our way of life in a future that would be prosperous and free for our children and grandchildren. So it wasn't entirely without notes of hope and optimism, but we fought that war out of fear and out of panic because we didn't want to, we didn't want to lose. We didn't want to face what it would mean to lose. And I think really every way you look at it, you see value in contemplating, um, value and value and fear. But beyond that, I'm not in my book, in the columns I've written, even in the original article, I'm not layering a lot of hyperbole onto the scientific facts. Mm -hmm. I'm really walking through summaries of scientific research as, that has been published in literally the best papers, the most prestigious journals, um, written by the most status scientists out there. And the experience of reading those summaries, I agree, is terrifying. But that's because the facts are terrifying. And I think the only reasonable response to that, the only reasonable um, reaction is alarm. I think if the facts are alarming, we should be alarmed and act accordingly. And I think that's sort of where we are collectively now. We need really urgent action to avert some truly terrifying scenarios. And I think understanding just what it would mean to get past two degrees to two and a half degrees to three degrees to four degrees I think that's really important. This is the range of scenarios that is um, overwhelmingly likely for us in the next century, somewhere between two degrees and four degrees. Mm -hmm. And there's been very little popular writing about what that what life would be like at that at that stage. So much 
focus um, has been on avoiding this two degree threshold of catastrophe that we haven't really thought deeply penetratingly about what it would mean to live at, at three degrees, which we will, as I said earlier, I think we will endure, our civilization will survive, but just how, just in what form and transformed in what ways, um, these are some of the bigger questions that I'm wrestling with in the book, not just, you know, not just what climate change is or will do to us, but what it means and how it will shape the way we live. Right. And that's your discussion in your later chapters. Of, I was going to ask you as a follow-up to the communication, the psychology, and that's this hope and versus fear and discussion, but you answered that. So let me go to uh, the issue, and you're not very sanguine about this, I think appropriately so, and this is the promise of NET, a negative emissions a technology, or uh, this is the carbon capture issue. You're probably well aware of the New York Times Magazine did a lengthy piece on the recent research on this. So this is the issue of uh, pulling uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. In part, uh, you can make uh, synthetic fuels, hydrocarbon uh, fuels, um, by doing this to um, offset the expense of pulling out uh, carbon. Although, of course, to make the hydrogen is very uh, electricity intensive. And, of course, if you burn these, you're basically just emitting the same amount of CO2 that you uh, pulled out of the air, so it's effectively carbon neutral. But there is an upside. This cost comes down to price and the technology. But what is your understanding of the promise or future of carbon capture based on your reading of the research? Well, I actually have a lot of optimism about it. Um, but I don't think that it's a silver bullet. I think the problem of climate change is just way too big for any solution, any single solution to tackle. And I think we get into trouble when we expect that there will be one breakthrough that simply solves the problem once and for all. And carbon capture can serve that purpose in our imaginations because it seems simple. We're putting all this carbon into the atmosphere. Maybe we could just suck it out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And there are those advocates who talk about it in precisely those terms, that we should stop thinking about this um, challenge as being the need to shut down this very complicated global carbon system and just think of it as like we need to take out the trash we need to figure out a way to store this um this waste and i think there is some wisdom in that um but i also think that um for reasons i'll get into in a second it's it's not going to be it's not going to be easy to solve this problem um through this method so at the moment the cheapest available carbon capture technology is um being developed by a, a company called Carbon Engineering, led by a guy named David Keith, with backing from Bill Gates. Uh, They're based at Harvard. Yeah, um, and the uh, the price that of their of their technology is they're able to suck carbon out of the air at a cost of about a hundred dollars a ton, which means that um, we could totally neutralize all of the extra carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere globally for the cost of about $3 trillion a year. That would mean we could continue operating exactly as we do and add no carbon to the atmosphere at all at the cost of, for a cost of $3 trillion a year, which is um, quite a lot, but it's not stratospherically high. Um, and in fact, there are estimates for how much, we, um, how much we're subsidizing fossil fuel 
companies now that run as high as $5 trillion a year. So in theory, we could redirect those subsidies to this technology and instantaneously solve the problem um, entirely. But there are a lot of complications. So we'd have to find a way to store that carbon and estimates for what that would mean are that we'd need a new infrastructure two to three times the size of the existing oil and gas industry just to store the, the carbon. And we need to negotiate where it would be stored, by whose homes, in which countries. Um, that, would all, you know, that would all be politically very complicated. It's also still the case that it's more expensive to suck carbon out of the atmosphere, even at this $100 a ton price, than it is to avoid putting it into the air in the first place. So it makes much more sense to invest that money in decarbonization and even R&D than it does through direct air capture. Um, but I think direct air capture will play a role going forward because there are sectors of, the, of our carbon economy that are going to be really resistant to decarbonization. For instance, air travel. You can't fly a plane on electricity, at least no time soon. We're very far from having an electric plane. We need fuel like the kind that we are using now, but that imposes a huge carbon footprint, so much so that one round-trip plane ticket um, across the country in the U.S. is the equivalent of eight months of driving. Um, that's just one seat on one plane. Um, and it's possible, given some of these technologies, that we'd be able to produce carbon neutral fuel that could power something like a plane without imposing, you know, a carbon cost on, on the economy or on the future. And there's reason for hope in that. I think there's great optimism about it. Um, and I think it's possible that we'll end up deploying some of this technology at significant scale. But by that, I mean, maybe it'll be absorbing 10%, 20% of our global carbon output. Output. I don't think it makes sense to think of it as a solution that's a bigger slice of the pie than that. And I think in general, we get into tr as I said a minute ago, we get into trouble when we when we look for silver bullet solutions here because mm -hmm. the problem is just much too big, much thornier than than that. And it's really more of a you know all hands on deck, kitchen sink approach that's necessary because we need to figure out you know, our energy use, we need to figure out our infrastructure, we need to figure out our agriculture, we need to figure out our industry, our, um, every aspect of modern life as we know it imposes some carbon cost on the future. And we need to figure out ways to eliminate all of them. I don't think carbon capture can do that economically. And I don't think it will be able to do that economically anytime soon. But it probably will play a role. And it's certainly reason for um, you know, it's certainly encouraging that so much progress is being made there. Okay. It's, you spent a good deal on, on the effects it will have on agriculture and um, changes in protein and uh, minerals we get out of um, foodstuffs, plant life. Uh, that I thought was very interesting. I think that gets under-discussed. Um, but let's go to my last question, for which we have time, and that is this is the uh, political will issue. You do have – a fair amount of discussion. Um, you focus it around uh, neoliberalism, um, but what's your general assessment of where we are politically? You know, as we hear over and again, this can't be solved um, by all those who uh, say, rather to Paris, we're still in, quote unquote. Uh, so this gets at the Green New Deal recently, and you've written some uh, pieces for the magazine on that, and this gets to, of course, 
uh, the carbon tax, which we don't have, it last tried in 2009. Uh, but what's your general assessment, again, of, of the politics? And we certainly know where the current administration is uh, on this issue. Well, I think, um, you know, that there, there are a lot of different ways to answer that question. But my big picture sense is that the politics are moving very quickly in the right direction. Um, you know, at the sort of level of public opinion, um, 73% of Americans now believe that climate change is real and happening. 70% of them are concerned about it. Those numbers are up about 15 points since 2015. They're up about eight points just since March. That is rapid change by any political um, science standard. The problem is it's not rapid enough to engineer the kind of policy change on the timeline that we need to engineer that kind of policy change. So we need even more rapid movement of public opinion um, than we've seen. And that's just the start. But I think it's exciting that um, there has been so much climate activism over the last six months. Um, Greta Thunberg and the school strike in Europe, mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion in the UK, Sunrise in the US, and the upshot of that is something like the Green New Deal, which is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tentative, it's basically a statement of principles. It's not really a, a policy sure. yet. But as a statement of principles, it is a dramatic leap forward from where even the Democratic Party was just a few years ago when a kind of modest cap-and-trade um, proposal was ultimately, ultimately failed. Um, and no, and now no we're questions place, during the 16 presidential debate, right? Yeah. And now we're in a situation where every single major Democratic presidential candidate um, has signed on to this policy or mm -hmm. proposal. And that's a major, major shift. Um, and I think we're seeing shifts like that all around the world. One big reason is that the conventional wisdom in economics has really changed on climate change. It used to be the case that we thought action was expensive because it required like big investment up front and also because it would mean foregoing some amount of economic growth because we'd have to say stop burning coal. Um, but all of the new research really reverses that logic and says that fast action on climate will benefit us dramatically and in relatively short order. There's one big study from last year that said that we could add $26 trillion to the global economy just by 2030 through rapid decarbonization. I don't think this new logic that we can save money, in fact, create wealth by acting faster has yet really um, percolated up into the minds of our policymakers. But when it does, I do think that there'll be a kind of meaningful um, shift in perspective and a whole new politics will emerge from that. Because I think for a very long time, those policymakers, even those who understood um, the threat of climate change, also felt the strong pull of the economic logic. And now that those two things are aligned, at least in the academy, I think um, things might move much more quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, David, we're uh, sadly at our, our time boundary, so this is a truly whirlwind. I wish we could have, um, again, uh, spent a bit more on uh, several of your chapters, least of which, again, agriculture, but the one on, on flooding, uh, sea level elevation, wildfires, and the rest of it is um, quite gripping, to say the least. So with that, I'll say uh, thank you. Maybe just a quick exit question. What's generally been um, uh, your sense of how the book's been received? I think really positively. Um, all of the reviews, um, maybe aside from one, have been um, quite positive. It's, you know, The Guardian has reviewed it twice yes, really I positively. Saw. Slate, Washington Post, um, 
you know, we're, we're really positive about it. Um, a number of other places have been kind too, and the, the sales have been remarkable. I mean, it used to be the case that nobody thought that um, climate change was something that readers were interested in, but it, its first week and uh, out in the market, it was the, it's now the number six um, number six on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been in the top ten on Amazon, although it's now not it's not there right now. But um, so there is an enormous appetite for truth telling about climate, which is really what this book is. Um, it's an effort to showcase the state of the science, what we know about what a what a future of two or three or four degrees will look like, and then sort of more speculatively some essays about what it will mean for the way that you and I and everyone we know will live in that future. And it's been really, frankly, gratifying to see, um, you know, so many people so eager to read about this stuff. And I hope that it's a reason for optimism about more political action, because I hope it signals more commitment, deeper commitment from those people who are most concerned to, you know, not a, not a major, not going to be a major driver of climate policy in in the U.S. No book could, but I hope it's a sign of um, new enthusiasm and a deeper commitment, um, and that those things could really um, bring us bring us to a stable, habitable, prosperous future. Sure, sure. Well, David, thank you again. Maybe per uh, your last point, maybe we come back and revisit this next year when the uh, campaign is in full tilt uh, for president. So. Again, uh, my appreciation. Thank you. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.